Welcome to Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we are joined by Marissa Glidden, who is the president of United Teachers of Richmond and also a sixth grade teacher. Marissa, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for the opportunity. So where are you located, Marissa? I am in Richmond, California, which is in the East Bay in between Berkeley and Oakland. Are you originally from there? I am from the Bay Area, not from Richmond. Oh, okay. Right on. Did How did you get into teaching? I have wanted to be a teacher since before I can remember. I was the kind of person who like lined up my stuffed animals, taught them every day, forced my sister to sit and be my student. <laughs> and so it was just like very natural that I became a teacher. It was something I'd always wanted to do. Did you go to school in the Bay Area? I went to UC Davis, so in Sacramento area, so close by. Right on, right on. When, when did you begin teaching then? So I began teaching right out of um, right out of college. I actually joined Teach for America, uh, which is interesting now in my experience from where I am as a union, a labor leader. Uh, but I started with that program um, and I've been there ever since. Did you come from a union background at all? No, I did not come from a union background. Right on, right on. Did um, Let's start with... United Teachers of Richmond, give us an idea of what the organization is and, and the kind of work that you're doing and how you got involved with it. Yeah. So United Teachers of Richmond represents 1,700 teachers, librarians, psychologists, nurses, speech language pathologists, I'm going to miss some other folks, uh, that encompass West Contra Costa County. So our district spans seven different cities, um, which include the biggest city, Richmond. Um, I became involved you know, I did not know much about unions, except for what I'd maybe studied very faintly in school. And I really began to see the importance of unions um, in the classroom, of seeing things that were missing and how do you make your voice heard? Uh, and that was by collective action. And so from there, I was like, I gotta learn more about unions. I have to understand how I can empower my voice and use collective action. I became a rep for my school. I ran to be a rep for my school. Um, in my second year teaching and I became just so interested in how we can use our voices all together to make changes for the school district for our students and um, was vice president and now I'm president eight years later. What, what were some of the first struggles that you engaged in before getting into being vice president and president? So it's a, this is a very, um, it seems minor when I think about the other issues that our union does, but it was the first one where I was like, wow, there's a problem, how do we solve it? It's collectively by organizing together. It was our school facilities in our district are really poor. Um, and I was on the second floor, we had windows that opened half an inch and it was, you'd walk in and it was 92 degrees in the classroom. And we'd have kids that would have bloody noses and headaches and it was just miserable. You could not effectively teach in that environment. And I was like, oh my gosh, we've been living like this forever and what's going on about it? And so that was my first step with the union and really just first by going teacher to teacher of like, how do we solve a problem like this? Um, and then through collective action, we were able to get fans and make some, some progress. Uh, and I saw like, that is the way by empowering voices and by working together that we can make changes. Otherwise it remains status quo. Did you gather some inspiration from other teachers unions, such as I'm very familiar with the Chicago teachers union because we're very close to them and we've worked with them in the past. So Yes. And as president and I, as we evolve our organizing strategies and as we evolve our democratic practices, I look at, at CTU constantly as like a, a prime example of what you can do, especially not just for organizing for your own members or for your own schools, but organizing for the common good 
and organizing for the community. And that's really what UTR is trying to evolve to become. How about the engagement from membership generally? Have you seen that since your time at the rank and file level, moving up through vice president and now president? Has it been that there's been more teachers engaged through that process? Yeah, it's been a big goal of ours. And I'll say when I started, um, it was a pretty dysfunctional, we were pretty dysfunctional in a lot of ways. Uh, there wasn't a lot of unity. And because we span so many different cities, our schools are, are really different. Right. Um, we serve different students, we serve different families. And so it was often hard for us to come together. Um, and I've really watched over the years by becoming more democratic, by having more member input, by like really deeply organizing instead of just mobilizing. Um, we're able to see, you know, we're not, we're not where we want to be. We're not CTU, but we have made a lot more progress. And because members' voices feel like they're being heard, um, and because we're incorporating the community more, there's much more engagement, and we've had many more wins by doing it that way. Now, we talked about this a little bit before the official interview. We are both uh, extremely fond of Jane McAlevey and the work that she does. Is this? Did you become aware of her work while you were at the rank and file level, or was this something that you were kind of using those methods as you've been organizing over the years? So uh, everyone knew Jane's name, uh, even in the rank and file, I'd say. But our union was not really actively using it. It wasn't until I started reading her books and I was like, oh, wow, this is what organize, like deep organizing can become. And it's a lot of work and there's a lot of steps and it's very different than what we'd been engaged in. Um, and then as I became president, um, that's something that we like worked with the executive board to really start digging deeper into. Um, so yeah, something I'd known about, were we always doing it? No, yeah, but yeah. we're really deeper into it now. And, and people have been receptive to it? To those approaches, those methods? Yes, I think it makes it makes it a democratic process. It makes members the center of what we do. And it's much more empowering than the work we were doing before, which felt a lot more top down. Right, right. That makes sense. Let's get into the pandemic thus far. Give us a sense of how challenging, and I know this is a big question, but give us a sense of how challenging 2020 was, and then we'll move on to present day today. Yeah. That is a good question. And it was challenging. I can say it's like, I went from, I was teaching third grade last year. I was teaching my kids one day. And then there was a positive case at our school of this mid-March or early March that we never heard of. And the school just shut down. We got to school in the morning and they said, we need to shut down school right now. And we're like throwing computers. We don't have great technology. We're throwing computers out at, at students as they leave. And then my co-teacher and I were teaching on Zoom that afternoon, trying to call parents, trying to talk them through how to log in, um, set up their tablets, you, you know, find hotspot Wi-Fi's. Um, so it was really challenging. We'd really gone overnight from something that we'd gone to school for, we learned how to teach, and it takes a long time to really become a good educator, and you're really constantly learning. And then to flip it overnight to be this online educator and still try to connect and reach out to your students was, it was really a challenging experience. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. Get, get what? How do I put this? There's been a lot of talk in the media, like trying to pit parents against teachers, and we know that 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 is totally wrong. How have you dealt with that so far, like over the last year? Because you went from the spring, and then I think all of us were aware the summer people thought, ah, oh, maybe it'll go away. Some schools started in person, then it went back. What did that look like, and how have you? dealt with sort of creating those that communication with with parents and, and making sure they're on the same page best as we can, you know, with teachers. Yeah, 
it's it's been such a hard experience for everyone, for parents, for teachers, you know, for our whole country, for the whole world. Um, and I'll say we first started this summer thinking deeply about equity because we serve a district that's so diverse. Uh, we're 70% free and reduced lunch. So the majority of our students are free and reduced lunch. However, we have some schools that are much more affluent. And our concern all along was that we were gonna be using the average county average to open schools um, instead of using zip codes. And we have zip codes that are five or six times the average COVID rates. So we really came from a place and came together as a union and said like, we want to open equitably. Like we wanna make sure that we are doing this right. And that's been our guiding force throughout. Um, I think that's really helped engage parents to help them understand that you know, if a student walks into our school building, it needs to be just as safe in an area with predominantly low income students as it is in an area with much more affluent students. Um, but it's definitely been challenging. There are, there are groups of parents who are really eager to open schools and I understand that, of course. It's interesting because those are often coming from the more affluent areas. Um, and most parents in our district um, are not ready to return to schools fully yet. I was just going to ask that we live in Michigan City, Indiana, which is like a devastated Rust Belt town that's been deindustrialized for the last 40 years. 53% of our of the people living in our city can barely make ends meet. The poverty level is well above the national average, all the rest. It's just a, a really devastated city. And it also seems clear to us that the people who have been pushing for schools to open more quickly have really come from these more affluent areas in our region, whereas a lot of students, especially from um, in the black communities here, but also in immigrant communities, people are worried living multiple generations under one home, working multiple jobs, using public transit, like all of those things are coming into play. It's like a factors of why teachers or parents wouldn't want or would want students to, to return. What, how, have you seen any kind of communication between the parents from these different kinds of backgrounds? What has that looked like? If it's taken place at all, I'm, I'm just kind of wondering. No, it, it really feels like we're living in two different worlds. And that's what's been very interesting about this about this whole thing. I mean, we've seen inequities that existed long ago now being amplified. But to see the families that have been most impacted and our teachers know because they're with their children, um, you know, seeing people get sick on screen or talking to families that are in the emergency room um, where we've got lots of essential workers being forced into unsafe situations and their families have been devastated. I mean, part some of our communities have just been devastated. And then we've got areas that have been not touched at all. And they are so comfortable in those areas to return to school. Whereas the others are not really not ready because you know they, they, they've seen firsthand how, how deadly this virus can be. And we have not seen those, those uh, two communities come together or talk at all. It's been really interesting because we've got one community of parents saying we need to open for the black and brown community and then the black and brown community is saying we do not want to go back to school yet it is not safe right right that that makes a lot of sense and jives with what we're seeing as well how about independently have the parents um been organized on their own like so have you seen any kind of like movement or action say in the community among parents maybe not uh intermingling between different geographical areas or zip codes but just like on their own do you see parents kind of coming together in any way so we see the parents that want to reopen coming together. Definitely. Uh, it's clear they have like more time on their hands or more mobilized. Uh, the other families have just straight up said like, we're not, if school's open, we're not, we're not coming back. 
Yeah. So please provide us an option, which also um, is really challenging when we think about who are we opening for when we open schools? Who are we, when we open schools, people forget like there's, teachers are just one person in a classroom. Our class sizes are up to 38. They're really large. They've been a problem for a long time. So when we open schools and we have some students returning and we know they're more affluent students, those are the students that are gonna get the instruction. The remote students are just gonna be either watching from a live stream, which we know is not the same thing, or independently working on their computer. Right. So that's part of the concerns that teachers have really brought up when thinking about doing this in a way that's fair and yeah. serves the students that need it most. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I was gonna ask you, how much do you think this opportunity allows, well, this might be getting ahead of, of myself. So let me, let me ask you this. What, how about today? Let's, let's get up to where we're at today. Um, there seems to be a sort of renewed push to reopen. There is some data that suggests that schools haven't been an area of community spread, which of course is positive, but people are using this data to like rush the schools to reopen. And of course, we're seeing teachers unions across the country say, hey, wait a minute, including many parents. So in Chicago, same thing. The wards that have uh, the richest people with the highest incomes, they're pushing, they're organized, they want these schools to reopen. On the west and the south side of Chicago, where a lot of teachers also live, in communities of color, of you know people who are not as well off as people in other parts of the city are saying, wait a minute, we, we got the good information, that's great, but we actually need a plan. What does this look like for you at where we stand today? Yeah, I think it's, it's great that there's new data coming out, Unfortunately, a lot of the data that's come out is from communities that look really different than the communities that we're serving. And they're usually rural communities. That the, the study that's often cited is a Wisconsin study in rural Wisconsin with predominantly white population and very, very small class sizes. And what this is showing is things that we've known all along that our, our urban schools have been so underfunded um, that we can't just transform overnight to make them safe. Like we have really old ventilation systems. We have packed classrooms. We have not enough staff to make this possible and um, overworked people. Yeah. And so um, it's just amplified those issues. Uh, I think really clearly, at least to me. So are you currently in a hybrid model? What is the, what is the actual situation for your district right now? Right now we have community hubs available for our most vulnerable students to get support. Um, and then the rest of the schools are in remote learning. Okay. How about local and, and sort of county politicians? How, what has the relationship been with, I see you smiling. What, <laughs> what has been the uh, relationship with local politicians? Have you seen some help? What is like from the state all the way down to the municipal level? What has your experience been on that front? Very interesting. I think, so from the beginning, we came in and we were like, there are so many red flags in the way that we're discussing reopening schools in California to be allowed to reopen your county has to reach a certain average. And like I was saying earlier, the, our counties are enormous and they serve, they're, they're very widely distributed. So we've got Richmond and San Pablo with some of the cities in our, in our district that have five times the number of cases as the average, but they're being considered safe to reopen. Um, and so from the very beginning, we said, we're gonna put our advocacy and energy, we wanna reopen schools like badly. We wanna be in the classroom with our students, um, but we're gonna put our energy into lowering the spread. 
because when the spread is lower, it's safer for everybody. And we, and then it doesn't matter as much if the ventilation is not perfect. Doesn't matter as much if you don't have as good masks. Let's lower the spread. So we did a bunch of our advocacy towards the county health officers of saying, please put testing sites, put contact tracing into our hardest hit communities. And we we rallied together all our local unions in our um in our county, and we we're like all of us are committed to doing this equitably please put the contact tracing put the testing in place open the testing centers for more than a few hours and it has been crickets i mean we we no bilingual trans no bilingual contact tracers are very few uh not as many testing sites as we'd like um so it's been interesting they're the, the politicians that we put pressure on to help actually stop the spread of this virus has been minimal but when it comes to reopening schools, they're very, very eager to just immediately open the doors. And they've been very active in, in that, but not active in the supporting our communities to stop the spread of the virus. Well, it sounds like an opportunity to come up with some future electoral targets, uh, pe people who need to go. <laughs> um, what do you think is needed right now, most needed? Uh, for you to be able, I know you mentioned some of this in your previous response, but what do you absolutely have to have? And what do you, what are you thinking in terms of, how do I put this? There have been a lot of people who have tried to get kids and teachers back to do exactly what they would do before. I guess one of the questions I have, and one of the things I've, I've asked almost every teacher I know is, do you even think it's reasonable to, to expect teachers and students to achieve the same kind of academic curriculum within this context as we would expect under, you know, quote unquote, normal times. I mean, that's so in other words, like I'm thinking we're expecting students to go through this process and still learn all of the same material that they were expected to learn prior to the pandemic. And that to me has seemed really wild. Um, I, I just kind of wanted to get your thoughts on that and then we can we can get into ex exactly what's what's needed right now. Yeah. There's been a, and we had this discussion this summer when we were kind of writing, negotiating with the district of what online learning was going to look like, because the district wanted it to look just like in-person learning looked, like same standards, same all day on Zoom, same live interaction with all 38 students on screen. And our educators are like, hey, that doesn't, that's not going to work. We're going to need a lot more social emotional learning because our kids are going through extreme trauma. Their families are going through extreme trauma. And so we've got to emphasize social emotional learning as we do that. And I'm, I'm grateful for the advocacy of our teachers because we're able to get a lot of um, professional development in there um, with a lot of race and equity professional development, which we really need um, and more social emotional support for our students. So no, I think it's very unrealistic to expect that kids are going to be able to magically learn the same things they did, not just because the school style is different, whether that's hybrid or online or, or even fully in person, but also because like students can't learn as effectively when they're under extreme trauma and stress. And this experience has been, you know, unprecedented trauma for everybody. And for people who are watching or listening to this who are not teachers, can you give people a sense of the experiences and difficulties students are coming into your classroom with. In other words, I think people just see teachers sometimes and they're like, oh, they do this job and the kids show up. And it's like, you know, many of these kids in some districts here in Michigan City, we have a situation where maybe one third to one half of the kids who are showing up to class are showing up hungry. 
They haven't eaten. Maybe some of them within 12 to 24 hours have not eaten at all, especially if you're coming off of a weekend. Like the, if you could just sort of speak to the, to the multiple levels of emotional, social labor that teachers do, that it's not just come in, knock out the curriculum. Oh, the student's upset. That's fine. Send them to the nurse. No, like that there's, I, I want to harp on this because teachers, I think, do so much and are responsible for so much that's unseen and not official. Um, and I'm just, if you could just please speak to those challenges, I think it's important for people to hear them. Yeah, thank you for thank you for bringing that up because I think you're right. People don't really realize what actually happens in the classroom, whether that's a virtual classroom or a physical classroom, um, and what teachers really do. It's like our students come in, we've got 30, 30 plus students with their own experiences, their own life experiences, their own morning, their more own night before, uh, their own years before coming into a classroom um, with one educator, one teacher. Uh, and they they bring in everything that they've experienced to that classroom. They bring in, you know, the hunger, like you said, our, our um, I'm really proud our district served 10 million meals. They're basically serving as the, as a food bank right now. Um, Teachers are volunteering with food service workers doing that. Um, but our families are relying on that. They come in hungry. They come in with the, the trauma of violence in the community. They come in right now with the trauma of like their families are dying. And I think a lot of the people that are really pushing to reopen forget that a lot of our children are watching their family members get really sick or dying. Um, or being afraid every day because their parents are going into unsafe situations. Um, our children are dealing with immigration. A lot of them are undocumented and the fear that they bring into that every day. So there's a lot of counseling, a lot of emotional labor that you're putting in still while trying to, you know, educate and teach them to read and teach them to do math. It's, it's everything. It's a full community that occurs in that classroom. So before we get into what needs to happen in the future, I wanted to ask if you've been in contact with any other sectors of the economy. So other workers, nurses, essential workers, what has the union's orientation been to say other workers in different sectors? Yes, uh, we have been, and we've been especially working closely with the other labor unions in our district, um, also in our county, but most specifically with the ones in our district that are on the, on the front lines right now our janitors, our food service workers um, who are out in front uh, working. And even within our district, a lot of them have gotten sick. We're already seeing um, flaws even within our district in the procedures that they said they've put in place that would keep people safe. Uh, and a lot of the advocacy we've tried to do, to do is to work with these sectors to try to help advocate for them to get some of the things they need uh, because there, there are students' parents, there are students' grandparents, our students' aunts and uncles. They're part of this community that we serve. And so important. I mean, getting to obviously Jane's point about whole worker worker community involvement and and the the success that the CTU had, of course, was largely due to the fact that they had built such strong bonds in the community and reflected their demands. You know, and that it just seems so important right now that people see themselves as being connected to everything else. That you're not separate from the worker at the grocery store, you're not separate from the school uh, that you're sending your child, children to. You know, I think that that's such an important message right now. Exactly, and I think that's part of the problem is that people do think of themselves as separate yeah. when and not united as the workers who are doing the work. Right. Um, so I think that's a really important point. And then to, to sort of finish up, I'm wondering what needs do you think, you know, 
are required moving forward? What would you like to see and what, what I know you don't just hope that this is going to happen. These are things you're going to actually organize and fight for. But what are you thinking moving forward here into this new school year? And then the lessons that we've learned over this last year, what absolutely needs to change? I'm sure some of them are things that you thought well before the pandemic, but what are the things that need to change uh, moving forward? Yeah, great question. And you can go as long as you want. That's okay. I don't mean, you don't yeah, have to. I was to. like, I've got so many. Yeah. I've got so many. Um, I'll say first, I hope people realize how much school does. Our schools have just been historically underfunded. Our teachers have been historically underappreciated. The school staff that surrounds schools that do so much work for way less, way less money, way less everything. They do so, so much for our communities. Um, and they're central to the community. And they've really been uh, taken for granted. And now we're seeing it that there's a disaster. We're in the middle of like a real tragedy. And people are expecting schools to be able to snap their fingers and transform, but we have so little. So my hope is that people will not forget and they will pour into their school and understand that they are central to the community. Um, I would love to see community schools, meaning all of our schools need to be community schools, working in tandem with the community, having nurses that not just our students can access, but the community members, the families can access, mental health providers, um, food pantries, and they serve as central parts of the community. So that is my hope and what I want to, we are ready, UTR is ready to fight for, post this of saying, what wasn't working before the pandemic? Let's not put a Band-Aid on it, Let's solve these problems. Let's invest and let's fight for the schools that our, that our communities really deserve. What I also hope to see is that people start to understand teachers are not separate from their teachers unions. I'm seeing this a lot where it says teacher unions are preventing a reopening of school. A teacher's union are teachers together collectively organizing on behalf of themselves, on behalf of their students. So I hope that people will understand that narrative and understand that um, unions are great and teachers unions are the reason that schools are, are, have made any progress. Anytime there's a class size decrease, any class there's a mental health service provider, anytime there's a culturally, res culturally responsive curriculum, that's because educators fought for it collectively as part of their union. So. I'd say my two big hopes and what we're really, I'm focused on and wanna organize and fight around is one, community schools where we just, we do not forget after this pandemic and we don't blame schools for the societal's problems, precise society's problems, which is what we're seeing right now of, I don't wanna hear about the pandemic, let's solve the pandemic, let's open like normal. It's the school's faults they can't just magically open it's not the fault of all the politicians, of all of the rules, of us making essential workers work in, work in dangerous reasons, it's schools. So I hope we can get past that, understand the importance, and then two, value what a teacher's union brings to your school community. Right on, Marissa. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you taking time out of like the actual work that you're doing to talk with us. We appreciate it more than you know, and, and we hope to speak with more educators and, and teachers because I think this the message that you're bringing is so important, and there's so many, even parents that I know, who don't quite understand, maybe they don't know a teacher, you know, I have teachers who are in my family and close group of friends, like, I just think it's so important that this communication, this dialogue continues, so, you know, 
people on the outside could really understand what the heck is going on within these schools and the challenges y'all face. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity because it's been, it has been difficult to hear how teachers and teachers unions have been portrayed. Yeah. Um, when really we all share the common goal of like, we really wanna serve students, we wanna open schools, we wanna do it safely and we wanna do it in a way that's equitable and serves all of our students. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Wait, you're telling me that being a teacher isn't the most highest paid, most glamorous job in the world and you don't do it because you're a rock star as a teacher? I, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah, I didn't, I was like, I thought it'd be like the NFL or right. something. The money would come pouring in. I thought that, you know, when I asked the district for certain things, which is also something people don't understand is like the district can make a great plan. The city can come up with a great plan. But as a teacher in the classroom, uh, I cannot tell you how many times I have requested something from the district and not gotten it. Yeah. You know, we don't have expo pens. We don't have pencils. We're promised things constantly that we don't get. So, you know, when teachers unions are are out there advocating, they're on the front lines like CTU, um, like UTR. When we're out there being like, we demand a really strong plan. We demand the strictest safety standards. It's because we want to keep your children safe, and because we want to keep the school community safe. And it's because we know that we've made promises that don't always fall through. Marissa, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for your work. And we're in with solidarity with you. And we wish you the best in, in all of your struggles and fights. So take care and thank you. Thank you so much. All right. See ya. Bye. You've been watching Park Media. I'm your host today, Vince Emanuele, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey, thank you for watching and listening. If you think this program is worth a pack of cigarettes or a cheeseburger, you could become a Patreon for as little as $3 a month. The link is available at our website, parkmedia.org. That's P-A-R-C media.org. Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel below. Also, you could find us on Instagram at Park Media, Facebook at Politics, Art, Roots, Culture, and you could find me on Twitter at Vince Emanuele.